Hello, this is James Kent. I am the Movie Morlock. Welcome to the program. I don't even know why I'm here, right? <laughs> I've been listening to some podcasts lately. Some really good ones, too. And, you know, sometimes it's kind of depressing because uh, these are celebrities of various, uh, you know, people in the entertainment industry. And you know that they've got just thousands and thousands of listeners. And here's me with my little show <laughs> struggling to stay on. And, uh, you know, that's just how it goes, right? And in the pandemic, uh, so many more people got podcasts. There was already a gluttony of podcasts prior to the pandemic. But uh, when uh, Teal and I were doing our show and then uh, the pandemic comes along and everyone's like getting microphones anyway for Zoom meetings. And they're like, hey, wait a minute, I can do a podcast. Uh, you know, so I like to think of me as the niche choice for you, the listener, because you just want to get that uh, special brand of entertainment. Okay, so uh, the big movie this weekend is the uh, 26th installment of the James Bond franchise. No time to die, da da da, this week. Weekend, no time to die. Da -da -da, ba -da 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 -da. And that, of course, is playing only in theaters, not streaming anywhere. And I am a James Bond fan. I mean, they're not my favorite movies, but uh, I just have that, like, you know, affection for them and have seen so many over the years in the theater that I really wanted to see this one on the big screen. I feel like the stories aren't really a small screen type of story. For me, the choices are kind of limited uh, now that my theater in town closed and I could go up north an hour and 40 minutes uh, to probably the best screen in town. Or I could go a little bit southwest uh, over the border to New York and I could see it in the best theater there that's close to me. Um, then there's another theater that's a little bit closer in New York and that's probably not as good, but I could have, you know, shaved another 20 minutes and just uh, maybe gone just an hour and 10 minutes. That would have been my fastest option if I wanted to see the James Bond movie. Um, but I decided I'd go up north and see it. I decided that I would go up north, take that long car ride, check out the James Bond movie. Um, part of the reason was is that I figured that I live in this very you know, low populated state in Vermont and it would probably be the least busy if I went up there, which would allow me some space um, and not have to sit next to anybody during this pandemic. I, of course, uh, brought my mask with me uh, just in case. And, and it turned out that I wanted to use it because it wasn't super busy at the theater, but there was enough people in the vicinity that I just wanted to wear a mask. Um, and they have this nice theater. They call it the T-Rex. Uh, that's their big super sound system. Pretty big screen. I mean, it's not an IMAX. I would have loved to have seen this in IMAX, but it, it's still pretty good. And it's where I went uh, over a year ago and saw Tenet. Actually, it was almost, it was probably around the same time when theaters first opened and then Tenet thought, this is going to usher back in all the movies. It did not. But when I went to see Tenet, I was there with five people. Um, there was certainly more than five people here. Uh, of course, this is the thing. And, you know, when people are wondering, when are we going to return to normal? And I have a great example of why we are not returning to normal. Why are people not going to go back to the theater unless they're desperate to see something? Uh, because right now, a lot of the wrong type of people are going to the movies. They don't seem to care about their health at all. And 
they are suspicious. <laughs> and I had a guy, he was in the row behind me. I was sitting pretty far back, but he was sitting in the row right behind me, but he was over uh, to my left side a few. So he wasn't exactly um, right next to me, but you know, he was by himself and he's kind of one of those odd characters that you can see in movies. And I've gone to so many movies that I've seen them all. And uh, this guy definitely, even under a non-pandemic standards, he would have been one of those weird, creepy dudes, you know, kind of mumbling to himself occasionally. But no sooner did the movie start that I heard this kind of snorking, sniffling noise, like, <sniffs> and I'm like, great. So this guy decides to go to the movies. He's got a cold, like, you know, what? not in this day and age. Don't do that. He's doing it enough that I got to look behind me. Kind of wish I didn't. Uh, this is something I've never seen ever in a movie before. But he had two thick, long, running streams of snot coming out of both nostrils, dripping down into his mouth area. Um, yeah, so that was a thing <laughs> there. And at that point, I just tried to like block it out as much as I could. I actually moved over another seat and everything's assigned seating now. That's what's kind of annoying too about a lot of these things today is I love to, uh, instead of, you know, getting into it with people I can't stand in a movie, I would just move a bunch of times until I can find a spot where no one's annoying me. And I probably would have done that if it wasn't for the fact that, you know, I could end up taking somebody's seat. They come in late. Uh, so eventually I did move over a seat just to be a little further away from him. Um, so that was kind of setting the stage for this movie. And it made me, you know, realize that this is why a lot of people who are, you know, worried about their health with the coronavirus, they won't go to a movie even with masks because you're going to run into some jokers who just don't care. You don't know who's vaccinated or not. And if the theater, like the one around here, they don't require any type of proof of vaccination. Um, so, you know, the longer people refuse to get vaccinated, it's just perpetuating this because there are so many people that will say, well, I'm not going to go out and do this or that. And that is going to hurt those businesses. So, you know, quite honestly, it's such a silly argument. If people just get in the program and everybody would get vaccinated, it would really that's what we would turn everything to normal. Um, so that's enough of the preaching, but it's just, this is just a reminder of why people aren't going to go flock into the theaters when there's Mr. Schnozzle guy. Uh, okay, so the movie, uh, No Time to Die, uh, I somehow was able to get through the year plus since this movie was originally supposed to come out in May of 2020 uh, without really reading into it finding out any of the details of the plot, anything that I may not have seen in a, in a trailer a long time ago. But I've really uh, tried to stay clear of any spoilers. Uh, so I didn't really know much about this movie. I mean, I knew, uh, you know, Daniel Craig was in it, and this is his fifth outing as James Bond. I always thought he was a pretty good Bond. Um, the movies themselves, uh, the first one, Casino Royale, that was interesting because that's the one where you're judging, is this guy, is he a Bond? You know, that first movie, you're always nervous with the new Bond. Is it going to work? And I, I always thought he was a pretty good Bond. And then the second movie, Quantum of Solace, which is a strange name, I was not a big fan, and I don't really remember much about it. I guess there was a few things, but it really just, I thought it was one of those more kind of lame uh, Bond outings, though I liked Daniel Craig in it. 
The third one, of course, was Skyfall. And I thought, for my money, that was the best one. I mean, that was just, I remember seeing that in IMAX, and that's the one that Roger Deakins shot, and it's probably the greatest-looking James Bond movie. It also brought some of the iconic things about it. Um, and you also got a little backstory to James Bond, which uh, James Bond movies were never very good at doing that. So that one I really, really remember enjoying. And then the next one, which I can't believe it's been like, good five or six years or whatever, came out in 2015. And that was when I first moved up to Vermont. And it was that fall. Um, I had moved up in the uh, spring of 2015. And that is Spectre, um, which had the makings, I think, of a really good Bond movie. Uh, and it starts off with a great, great uh, intro. Uh, there's this great one-shot scene, and uh, it, it's intriguing. But then it really gets uh, tiresome and peters out. And the Spectre story, which always includes Blofeld, you know, it just wasn't that great. I, I mean, I thought it was just one of the weaker Bond movies. Now, this film, No Time to Die, uh, I think is definitely it's better than Spectre and it's definitely better than Quantum of Solace and for the most part I had a good time watching it. Uh, the thing is it's two hours and forty three minutes and then you add some previews on top and that's a long time for a Bond. I mean when, when you're pushing Godfather territory but it's a James Bond movie this is where you know hey they made a mistake <laughs> somewhere along the line and I think it just does get tiring after a while the the last forty five minutes it's just like you're kind of looking forward to. Uh, be over. And, and that's not a good thing. So, you know, there's a mixed bag there. And part of the extra length is that they spend a lot of time, again, with characters and backstory, which, you know, you'd think, hey, that's great. But with a James Bond movie, that's kind of the beauty of it. It's really about a story and it's about James Bond getting into ridiculous scenarios and getting out of them and kind of, uh, I guess, all on the way making some funny lines. And I guess in the old days, betting a bunch of different gorgeous women, um, and then usually, you know, usually one of them dies, and then he has another one that seems to be his love interest, at least for the end of the movie. For myriad reasons, that's kind of changed. And, you know, Daniel Craig is cool, but he's not very fun. He's never been a fun Bond. I mean, so, you know, like if you get a one-liner out of him, it's kind of a shock. And he does get a good one-liner off in this movie. And I guess because he doesn't do one-liners very often, it is actually amusing. It doesn't come off like, say, how when Schwarzenegger does a one-liner. Those are pretty stale. So the big problem for me, again, they, they really want to focus on this backstory and a kind of a love story for him. And uh, I don't know, I guess something for him to live for. And that has to do with this character played by uh, Leah Sado. She plays Madeline, and she was a, she's some kind of psychotherapist or something. And she was in the last movie, Spectre. Um, and there's a tie-in with Blofeld, and Blofeld's back for a bit um, and kind of completes the story. And then, of course, the story is cockamamie. Um, and in some respects, more cockamamie than other times because they have this goofy scientist guy who's kind of nefarious and there's something to do with like you know dna coding and something like kind of virus that could get out and you know kill people as a weapon and of course it's funny is that this was all designed before the pandemic and now the pandemic's come out and uh so i don't know whether or not it's uh 
good or bad taste but uh it's funny that these things have these little nanobots right that will go in and infect you and i thought that was kind of funny because that's one of the big conspiracy theories right that uh, people don't want to take the vaccine because they could be injected with nanobots and i'm thinking to myself they didn't even see the james bond movie and they were coming up with this stuff so uh that was kind of funny because uh you know the nanobots man you get those they're in there and you, you can't get rid of them and uh it has something to do with like the dna like if you touch that person with the DNA, then they die. But then also anybody who has the same type of DNA structure as them, they touch them, die. I mean, it, it, it's kind of crazy. But uh, then, they, you know, they got they got a new double O agent in the movie, uh, Nomi, played by Lashana Lynch. And, uh, you know, she's okay. Uh, she doesn't really get to do much, and I don't think her and Bond get to team up in a way that would have been good. Uh, so they kind of missed an opportunity there to really make her shine. You know, and then they have the other characters back, but they don't really get to do much. Uh, you know, Naomi Harris uh, playing Money Penny, Ben Wyshaw plays Q, Ray Fines M. Uh, so, you know, the whole gang's back. Also, you get Jeffrey Wright back as uh, Felix Leiter, which, you know, has a long history in the Bond movies, always playing James Bond's uh, CIA uh, friend. And in this case, uh, Jeffrey Wright's character enlists a decommissioned James Bond into helping him. Uh, you know, again, you just kind of got to go with the story. None of that still makes much sense. But it does give you a great opportunity to go down to Cuba for I think what's the best sequence in the whole movie. Uh, and James Bond has to hook up with another agent played by Ana de Armas. Uh, she plays Paloma and she's supposed to be sort of a new agent, uh, but she's got some, you know, cool, deadly moves. And uh, she just, everything about her and her character, it just exudes uh, radiance on the screen. Um, it's just a great character. And you know, kind of wish that she was along the ride for the rest of the movie because she's pretty amazing. Uh, and I'm, I give a lot of credit to her. She's just really, really good. Now, this installment, uh, kind of unique for other reasons that people who don't know James Bond as well might find fascinating. The director is an American-Asian director, Carrie Joji Fukunaga. He uh, did, like, the first season of True Detective, and no other American has ever directed a James Bond movie. It was always kind of a tradition that it was directed by a British uh, filmmaker. And that's kind of, I think, hampered the series a little bit, only in that there's been some great American directors that have always been in talks to do a James Bond movie and maybe put their stamp on it, and it never kind of panned out. Like, there were times, I think, in the late 80s, talk about Steven Spielberg doing one, but again, the Broccoli's didn't like the idea of an American. It just didn't work out. Um, there was talk in the 90s. Uh, Quentin Tarantino wanted to do a James Bond movie, but he wanted to kind of set it in the 60s and stuff. And, you know, the kind of crazy things that he wanted to do, that just wasn't going to work with their formula. Um, so again, there's a lot of interesting what-if scenarios. Uh, so I thought that was kind of fascinating that Carrie Joji... Uh, Fukunaga, he got to do it. And I think he did a pretty good job. Um, you know, I don't really fault him when the areas that I wasn't as pleased with. And again, I mean, I just, I enjoyed it. It just felt like it was a way over long exercise. And then, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not really here to do spoilers. Uh, I think that, you know, you can read up and find out all the things. And obviously it's not really a spoiler, but Daniel Craig without, you know, no certain terms says, 
I'm done. I'm not playing Bond anymore. So he got, you know, he did five. And if there wasn't such long delays between some of the movies, maybe he could have squeezed out a sixth or so. But I think they're physically demanding. You know, I mean, uh, Roger Moore, he didn't really have to do much because everything was like a stunt double. And you could always see the stunt double. It was kind of funny, especially the last outing for Roger Moore was A View to a Kill. And he was just, the 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 difference in the stunt doubles and him is so funny. And then the blue screens and everything. Uh, so they eventually got it into a more realistic uh, direction. And of course, special effects now. Uh, but still, Daniel Craig, I think he probably just really beat up his body doing some of these movies. So uh, there was a lot more, I guess, stunt work by other people than him in this one. And, and you know, it's pretty flawless. Uh, you don't notice that. And another thing that I think really does add a great dimension, the movie looks incredible. And, you know, the locations are always one of the things that you enjoy about Bond movies. But uh, I mentioned Roger Deakins and Skyfall. Well, this film was shot by uh, Linus Sandgren. And he is the cinematographer who uh, won an Oscar for La La Land. And then he also did the cinematography for First Man, and he did American Hustle and Battle of the Sexes, and a lot of times he shoots on film, so those are movies that were shot on film. The difference in this movie was it was shot, the action scenes were shot on IMAX cameras, um, which are huge, and those give a lot of depth. And so if you could have seen this in IMAX, you would have seen it like on the big super, you know, would have filled the screen on those scenes. Uh, so I really wish I could have seen it in IMAX. And then it was also, when it wasn't shot in IMAX, it was shot in 65 millimeter film, which is essentially what 70 millimeter movies are. Uh, so I really wish I could have seen a 70 millimeter print of this movie because it would have just been unbelievable looking. But I could tell, I didn't know when I, when I was watching the movie, I read this after, that it was shot on 65 millimeter in IMAX. And the results are just stunning. I mean, the images have this sharpness and depth. Uh, the color is great. And I noticed it right away. And I said, boy, this has to be the second best looking Bond movie I've ever seen. And it really does rival Skyfall for how it looks. And so that really um, was a plus. So, uh, and then of course, you know, the villain in the movie was uh, Remy Malik, and he has this weird name like Lucifer, Saffron. It sounds like Lucifer kind of thing. Um, and, uh, you know, he does the whole sticky Bond villain thing. Uh, it doesn't really get a lot to do. I think they could have maybe done more with him. I guess the big mystery is how are they going to wrap this up? Does James Bond get to go in the sunset with the girl, um, live happily ever after? Like, what's going to happen? And I won't spoil that, but I will just say that how they decided to resolve Bond wasn't what I would have done, personally. I think it was a little out of keeping with the whole series and the tradition of, like, you know, the fact that they've already established it doesn't really matter who plays James Bond and that uh, people just go, oh, yeah, it's Bond. I know it's a little crazy because of over time there's been different bonds. So I mean, you know, is it is it a Doctor Who ending? Does he get in <laughs> to the to the uh, to the time capsule there and turn and regenerate into a new bond? <laughs> Maybe Bond's an alien. I don't know. Um, I guess to finally resolve what happens at the end of this movie, we kind of have to wait till they create another one and see who plays the next Bond, and then we get to see how they handle all of that. Um, but uh, it was fun to go back and see a film in the theater. It certainly is a difference, a way big difference from watching it at home. Uh, I mean, I don't have this incredible surround sound system 
and I don't have like, you know, home theater. I have a pretty big TV set. Uh, so, you know, it would have looked all right, but it wouldn't have looked the same as a huge, massive screen and being enveloped with, you know, tons of noise. Uh, another thing I want to point out before we uh, move on to something else is the score. The score for the James Bond movie was by Hans Zimmer. And Hans Zimmer, he's, you know, he does some good scores, but I felt like sometimes it could, it could be something where if he's doing the Bond movie, it could sound very Hans Zimmerish. However, what was really cool is Hans Zimmer made a decision to evoke the James Bond scores that John Barry used to do. And it had that feeling, so it really kind of put it into that James Bond world. And it also used some of the the classic themes that you'd hear in the James Bond movies that I feel like for a lot of years to try to modernize James Bond, they moved away from. And they kind of got that back into the James Bond series with Daniel Craig, which I really, really liked. Um, but I thought that Hans Zimmer's score was really good and it fit the mood of the movie. And it really made you feel like you were watching a Bond film. Um, so, you know, if you're a Bond fan, definitely see it. Uh, maybe, you know, I it wasn't super busy this first weekend and it didn't do huge because, again, I would think that Bond movies skew a little bit older. And those are people that are like, yeah, I don't know if I really need to, you know, <laughs> no time to die. You're right. I don't I don't need want to die. Just go to see a Bond movie. But, you know, next week it probably won't be as busy. And the, the new Halloween movie is going to be out in theaters and also on Peacock. So, I mean, I wouldn't need to go out to the theater to see Halloween. And I certainly don't want to pay money for that. But I might watch it on uh, Peacock. But it just means that all the youngsters, uh, those uh, adventure thrill seekers who may or may not be vaccinated, they're going to go see Halloween. And you can go out and see the James Bond movie, and maybe it'll be a little less busy. So you might want to check that out. Um, I mentioned just Halloween a moment ago, and it is Halloween season. It's my wife's favorite time of year for watching horror movies, as it is for many people. Uh, but it's the one month where I have to kind of sit through some of these films and just, you know, grin and bear it. Uh, but we also have, you know, when you have kids that get of age, it's fun to go and watch some of these horror movies again with them. And my oldest, who's 13, he kind of just decided that he thinks that horror movies are dumb. He's seen a bunch and he really was hoping that one would scare him and they don't by and large scare him. And it's a hard thing to explain to kids that mm, horror movies aren't necessarily scary, but they can be fun. Like the genre can have fun when it's trying to scare you. And sometimes you might just find a little scene creepy and it's not scary in the way you think, but it, it, it is, you know, it gives you a little unsettled feeling. So our youngest, who is just about 10, you know, he's okay to maybe see some horror movies. And we watched The Shining with him. Uh, it's on HBO Max, really good print. And then on the it's probably since I last watched it in a theater, uh, which was like 88 was the last time I saw it in the theater because uh, I saw it at uh, USC. They were showing it in, in a film class. I think it was uh, for art direction. That was the theme that week. And it's one of the best art directed horror movies ever. Every time I've watched it afterwards, it's been, you know, on a TV. And of course, over the years, my TV sets have gotten bigger and bigger. And now I have this, you know, pretty big size high def uh, 4K TV. And so it's definitely the largest screen that I've watched The Shining on. And boy, when you have a nice, really solid print and a nice big screen, what is really cool, every time you watch The Shining, you kind of get into the mode of watching it in a different way. And I think this time watching it, it's probably the first time I've watched it in like two years. 
you really get to see the incredible performances. Uh, I mean, the cinematography by the late, great John Alcott is really great because um, it's not overly flashy. It's just, I don't know, it, the lighting is just right uh, and everything is perfectly lit. And it really, the interiors look like real interiors. They don't look like sets that were lit and that's one of the biggest uh, things that I have, a pet peeve of mine, that a lot of times you can tell when something is a set inside. And if you didn't know that The Shining, those were sets, you would think that they were it was a real hotel they were shooting in, which it was not. Uh, and so I really give a lot of credit to the John Alcott uh, cinematography. Also, the lighting, I feel like sometimes the lighting on hair and stuff. It, you know, I complained about this when I watched like The Father. The Father looked like a, a set, a really cool set, but that it was lit horribly, in my opinion. And this movie is just, the, it's just gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous, gorgeous. Um, and my youngest did not find the film scary, though <laughs> there's some parts that he definitely had uh, the blanket a little close to his face. And funny is that while anything violent, he finds that it's just make-believe and he doesn't find that scary or too intense to watch. Anything with nudity, he's just not ready to uh, accept. And so when the scene with the shower uh, and the woman comes out of the shower, he definitely was trying to cover his eyes because he just doesn't like seeing nudity. It kind of freaks him out. <laughs> so I thought that was kind of cute. Uh, but otherwise, he really, I think, enjoyed the movie experience. Uh, he definitely, I think, found it creepy in parts, though I don't think he, he didn't have any nightmares or anything. He didn't find it scary, but that was fun. And over the weekend, also on HBO Max, my wife and I watched a film that I'd heard about for decades and I was always curious about, always one of those, can it really be that bad kind of films? Because I'd heard it was terrible, has a terrible reputation. And since it was playing on HBO Max, my wife, who had also never seen this movie, we both took the challenge, and that is The Exorcist Two: The Heretic. Uh, now, this film came out in 1977, so it was only a few years after the Exorcist came out, which was a monster smash. Um, and at the time, it was the biggest box office film in terms of, you know, dollar grosses at the time. And then that was quickly replaced by Jaws. And then, of course, uh, in 1977, a little movie called Star Wars comes out. And I think Star Wars had been out only a few weeks after um, Exorcist to the Heretic. And in some strange ways, a film like Star Wars, which changed everything, about films and what a blockbuster could be and what the public was going to want. Anything that kind of came out around Star Wars or in the kind of tsunami of Star Wars, it just paled by comparison. And even though a movie like Exorcist II, The Heretic, is a radar movie, completely different genre, there's just something about seeing a film like that and the techniques used and the way it was made and how a studio thought of an audience and getting a product out there just to make a few bucks that just doesn't cut it when you're like, but I don't understand. A studio can give me Star Wars and then another studio can give me this. And I actually think it kind of hurts films like that. And it's just a big shadow over a movie. Uh, but also there's a reputation that The Exorcist had that – you know, it was at the time the scariest thing ever, and people really were scared. Uh, my mom tells me stories of my dad having nightmares after seeing The Exorcist. And 
And of course, I was all excited to see it for the first time. And when I watched The Exorcist, you know, I didn't find it scary. I liked it. And then I recently, I watched it again last year for the first time in many, many years, like a good 20 years. And, you know, I thought it was kind of, there's just an atmosphere as well made, but it's also a little clunky. Certainly not very scary by today's standards, uh, partially because so many of the things that were original about The Exorcist have become tropes that other horror films have used. And so if you're coming to The Exorcist years after seeing a bunch of other things, it just doesn't really feel like much. And you might be scratching your head as to why why did audiences think it was so scary? Uh, but they did. And so the real big problem is how do you make a sequel that can live up to that? And the, re the answer is you can't because it was a pretty self-contained movie. I mean, it told a story and it ended and it kind of finished it off. And at the time, American studios really weren't in the sequel business. So it wasn't like, oh, well, we got to make sure we end it on a way to uh, have a sequel. And so to create a sequel to something like that, you know, studios, obviously, they want another hit. I mean, it's just money that they want to print. There was a lot. I mean, they were pretty much throwing, you know, carte blanche, uh, William Friedkin's way and also William Peter Blatty. Come on, guys, make a sequel. Neither was interested. Neither would do it. Both thought that would be a terrible idea. So they couldn't get them back. Um, but they also, if you're going to do an, a sequel to The Exorcist, you don't have a sequel if you don't have Linda Blair, play the little girl. So they were able to secure her. They could not secure her mom, Ellen Burstyn. Uh, Ellen Burstyn was not interested. Uh, so they don't have her. And they did get uh, Richard Burton, right? So he's a big name, though at the time, you know, he he was really immersed in alcoholism at the time. So he wasn't making, you know, big hits, but he was a big name, right? And he was going to play, you know, some kind of priest. Obviously, the two priests in the first movie were both uh, dead. So, you know, couldn't have them. Jason Miller and uh, Max von Sydow who was the exorcist. But they got <laughs> they got Max von Sydow back. And what was interesting is that he was going to play in, in flashbacks. And one of the things that might have been uh, confusing to viewers when they watched this movie was how did they get him to look so young? Well, that's because they made him look so old in The Exorcist. He wasn't that old. So it was actually easy to make him look young in this film for these uh, flashbacks, which, of course, were ridiculous. And Linda Blair, the, one of the things that was interesting about her is she was just uh, like 13 years old when she made The Exorcist or something like that. Uh, she was only uh, 17, I think, when she filmed Exorcist 2. I mean, she was still pretty young, uh, which is funny because most 17-year-olds today in Hollywood are played by 25-year-olds, like um, but not back then. And so, uh, you know, she was looking to try to you know, further her career uh, because, you know, as a, as a kid actor, you don't really know where your career is going to go and hers wasn't really flying off and unfortunately and i kind of feel bad for linda blair i don't know how much of an actress she got really was or could have been uh i mean she knocked around and did a bunch of things over the years but nothing you know nothing really good this is a film that probably tanked her career um, and again, not really any fault of hers. Just a movie was such a stinker. Uh, so, you know, whenever a movie like this comes on and, we, and you start watching it, you're like, well, how quickly, how quickly will a movie like this start to stink? And it starts to stink pretty quick. <laughs> 
quick. Uh, one of the things that is good about the film, uh, there is a one good thing, and uh, Ennio Morricone does a pretty cool horror score. Uh, my understanding is that uh, audiences, the first uh, opening day, laughed at this movie so hard that the studio, uh, which was already realizing it had a super stinker, was looking to cut like 15 minutes out of the movie, uh, probably just to have shorter, you know, uh, runs because back then it was all about how many times can you get a film run through the day. And so even 15 minutes could help it. And I think that they even used a, a crazier uh, disco-y version of Ennio Morricone's main score, uh, put that on the opening uh, after they recut it. And again, that was, you know, the thought back in 77, well, geez, maybe if we had some disco-y sound <laughs> of the score, it'll uh, attract more people. But uh, that, that again, I, I don't really know. I've not seen that version. The version that HBO Max had was the full original version. I've read that, and I've read some of the things that were cut out. You know, it's hard to explain, but, like, the art direction was a really weird sort of, like, Eyes of Laura Mars, that late 70s uh New York kind of disco-y look, a lot of weird mirrors and other kinds of uh, strange set decorations. And then there's the Richard Burton character, plays this guy, Father Lamont, which is, he's guess he's been assigned by the Vatican or something to investigate the death of uh, Max von Sydow's uh, character, Father Karras. And it, it's just so wacky. Uh, there's just, I mean, there's just, I, I can't even explain this movie. It's so bizarre. But I will say that throughout the movie, Richard Burton's favorite word to use is, and he says it in such a funny, overdramatic way, evil. He says evil like 50 times in the movie. You could create a drinking game out of the amount of times that uh, Richard Burton says evil. Then uh, James Earl Jones shows up as this guy, uh, Kokomo, who had been possessed by Pazuzu uh, when he was younger. I mean, there was a lot of talk of Pazuzu and evil uh, in this movie. And at some point, you don't even care what the story's supposed to be. You're just going on in these weird visuals. They use like front projection and rear projection and have images of locust. There's this thing I call the locust cam where there's this locust flying around. <laughs> it's a really bizarre movie. And again, they could not get the original mom. Uh, so she was an actress in The Exorcist, right? So she she's basically conveniently off on location somewhere. And Linda Blair's character, Regan, is being watched by the person who was uh, her mom's secretary in the first movie, Kitty Wynn. She plays Sharon Spencer. And then also... Uh, and this is just never explained very well, but uh, I guess Linda Blair has been like seeing a, a, a psychotherapist. Uh, Louise Lasser plays Dr. Jean Tuscan. And the set of Louise Lasser's, uh, I guess her her workplace, is so bizarre. It's like shaped with like a honeycomb. I guess it's supposed to be like a hive in a sense. And that kind of ties in with the hive of these locusts or something. Uh, and there's all these like problematic kids running around uh, that she also takes care of. And then there's this weird like hypno machine that supposedly if, uh, if each person is wearing this headset and then is hooked up to the hypno machine, they can have like a mind meld and get into each other's uh, hypnosis. And there's this hilarious thing with like Richard Burton 
and he he tested out and he's like this scientifically proves that pazuzu possesses or something it's it's so ridiculous but the coup de gras of this movie in the height of bad taste and jaw-dropping like what did they just do there is a scene where linda blair is like i guess waiting for Louise Lasser, and she sidles up next to this young girl who's played by an extremely young, uncredited Dana Plato. And this little girl, she starts talking to her, and the little girl has this terrible stammer. She tells Linda Blair's character, she's like, and I I guess I will not uh, do the imitation, but in a terrible stuttering stammer, tells her that she's autistic. And I think at that moment on the couch, my wife and I's jaws just dropped because we've never, ever experienced somebody portray autism in this manner. It just shows you like what Hollywood was like back in 77, that that is, it is absolutely the furthest thing away from anybody who has autism, the way that this is performed. And somehow telepathically what we're supposed to find out is that this autistic girl was she was not uh, communicative before but suddenly through linda blair she now can speak and the parents are like you can speak i gotta go home and tell my husband while she can still talk and it's just hilarious and this movie is filled with gems like that throughout uh the climax which just goes on forever is so ridiculous uh there's this hilarious thing with like a a, a taxi cab spinning out of control and eventually crashing through the gates of uh regan's old home in washington dc and then there's this w- weird like plane turbulence and so many goofy things going on in this movie um and then again layered on top is richard burton's character father lamont which is just you 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 awe at the fact that that richard burton was this uh amazing stage actor who was also nominated like five or six times for oscars and what's even funnier is on the flip side of this here he is so terrible in this movie but the same year he actually gets nominated at the end of the year for best actor i think it is uh for his performance in equus so it's just a yin and yang kind of thing but clearly like richard burton was must have been trashed and i bet you when he's doing a, a shitty thing like this movie he was probably drinking further and further because he was probably so depressed that he was making a movie like this and i bet you didn't remember a single thing about it i am sure this was a blackout phase uh but it is just his performance is something that you want to go and watch and study uh and then the director john borman this guy went to movie jail for a good four years after this uh you, you could he couldn't get hired to do a movie and he bounced back with Excalibur, which also was not a hit. Uh, I mean, it became a classic, but at the time in the theaters, it just it did not do well. Um, but then he also uh, did The Emerald Forest, which was really great after that. And then he did Hope and Glory, which kind of put him back on the map as sort of Oscar consideration type directors. Uh, so, you know, John Borman, he, he did Deliverance, he did Point Blank. Uh, those are great Uh, things on his resume but then he does the one-two punch of zardos and exorcist to the the heretic 
arguably Zardos is funnier and more bizarre than Exorcist 2. But this that would be a great double feature, I think, that if you could get to see these in a revival house, I would pair Zardos and Exorcist 2 so you could be like, how would anybody ever hire this guy John Borman again? And I just, I don't know. I mean, I think there's just certain genres, I guess, that he just wasn't suited for because clearly he knew how to make a film. I mean, Deliverance is a masterpiece. Point Blank is weird, but it is, you know, it is classic. And then, of course, Hope and Glory was a film that when that came out in like 87, I really enjoyed that. It was one of my favorites that year. Uh, but anyways, go check Exorcist 2 out if you've never seen it and you want to laugh uh, because it is quite a hoot. And I definitely think that under the right circumstances, like if it was playing as a good double feature, I might go see it again. If I could see it with a crowd that was tuned in to just how ridiculous Exorcist 2 is. I mean, it is hilarious. There's so many funny things in it. So if you see that, you know, certainly right Write me at uh, moviemorlock at gmail.com and let me know what you thought of it. So those are those are the things. I, I also finished the Squid Game. Uh, so if you haven't checked out Squid Game yet, uh, you know, it was definitely quite the series. And I would love it if somebody really, you know, loved that show and wanted to just talk exclusively about Squid Game. There's a lot that you could probably talk about with that. But I, I, I got into it. I posted something on Facebook and, you know, I had this person going, I don't want to watch a show with like senseless violence. And they started off trying to make it sound like they'd watched it and it was nothing but senseless violence. But it was pretty clear that they had not seen it. And after, you know, a few back and forth, I got to the nitty gritty that they had not seen the film, uh, the show. And I know that it is pretty violent. But there's a point. And if you don't like violence, that that's fine. I mean, you don't have to watch a squid game. But I what I hate is when people judge something without actually watching it and then telling you what it's supposed to be. That's just never going to fly with me in an argument. And I will win every time because if you don't actually watch what you're talking about, that's just not a way to start an argument uh, anywhere. <laughs> but uh, so, you know, there's the squid game. Plenty of Halloween stuff. And, of course, in theaters, no time to die. In a few weeks, there will be a couple things coming out. There's Dune, which is going to be on HBO Max. And then there is the new Wes Anderson film, The French Dispatch. And I am a big Wes Anderson fan. And so what I'm going to try to do, if possible, is get back out to the theater to see hopefully a double feature of Dune on the big screen and the French Dispatch. If that double feature isn't going to work, then I can watch Dune, you know, at home on HBO Max. But that just feels like it's got to be seen on the big screen to really be appreciated. And then the Wes Anderson, you know, while you could certainly watch that on the small screen, I'm, I'm just a fan and I want to see it on the theater. That's just, you know, I want to support that movie. So those are probably the next two things I will see in the theater. And then I know for a fact by hook or by crook, I will not miss it unless I'm like indisposed for a month in, uh, I think it's going to come out maybe early December or late November. It's unclear, but Paul Thomas Anderson's newest film, Licorice Pizza, coming of age type of show, late seventies. It's just totally my jam. The preview trailer looks amazing. And the rumor is that the Village East Theater in New York City is going to show it in 70 millimeter. It was shot on film and I just love it. It wasn't shot in 70, but it's going to be, he likes to release his films in 70 because he feels that the film stock gives the movies a certain look that he can't achieve with the film stocks of today. And since 
so few theaters will project it on film anyway. Why not try to shoot the, you know, for the moon and, and show a 70 millimeter print? I don't know if it will play anywhere else. So in Boston, there are two theaters that can show 70 millimeter, and one is got the projection on site all the time. That's a Somerville theater, which I love. And then there's also the Coolidge Corner Theater, which I think for those special presentations brings in the equipment and that is another option if they decide to show it. Uh, certainly going to Boston will be faster than going to New York, but if that's my only option, I might have to take, uh, get up early on the morning, go to New York City, see it, and then come home. I've done it before and I'll do it again. Do it again for film. All right. So stay tuned for all that. Again, I don't know when my next episode is going to be. Uh, I'd love to have guests, but, uh, you know, it seems like all the guests are being gobbled up by all these, like, you know, celebrities with their podcasts. Uh, but I like the small guests, too. So, again, I, I just like to talk to somebody. If anybody wants to uh, get in touch and be on the show, that's great. I, I think there is still somebody out there that I'm, I, I've got to watch one movie and then we're going to find time to uh, record. So that will happen at some point. Um, and then, you know, who knows? We'll hopefully get some other people. But I'm, I'm willing to talk about any film subject that you want. So get in touch and let's do it. Uh, MovieMorlock.com is the site where you can find the episodes. And, uh, yeah, we're on Movie Morlock Instagram. You can check me out there. And, like I said, moviemorlock at gmail.com. All right, everyone. Watch some stuff at home or in the theaters. Bye now. <laughs>